Listener supported. WNYC Studios. What is the impact of language, of words? How do they change our very chemistry? And how might those words impact our own path in life? I'm Helga Davis. New York Times best-selling author Jason Reynolds sat down with me to talk about what it means to make things during this unprecedented time. It's been interesting, and it's also been really wild as an artist to try to make stuff. And how to hold space for the next generation. I struggle with it because I want them to have theirs. This is Helga. The Armory Conversations with Jason Reynolds. <gasps> yes! <laughs> Good morning. Yes. Yes. Where are you coming from? Uh, I was coming from Georgia. I'm in D.C. right now, which is where I live, but I was in Atlanta for a couple of weeks doing some work. Huh. How does it feel for you to travel a little bit right now? It's strange. I'm only traveling by car. I am far too nervous to get on an airplane Mm -hmm. at the moment. And so if I'm going somewhere, it's got to be in driving distance, you know. So I went on and did the 10 hours. Ooh. Which is, for me, is okay. I'm I'm, I'm a road trip kind of guy. How have you been, by the way? Hmm. Because I haven't seen you. Last I saw you was at the school when y'all did the All-American Boys joint. And then before that was like Walter's thing. I mean, how you been? How are you dealing with all of this? The answer to that, it depends on the day. And sometimes it depends on the hour. And then sometimes it depends on the minute. And so I've, I've not actually been doing very well with all or any of this. In yeah. part because I, I think that I was kind of tricked into believing that it was only going to last for a couple of weeks. Yeah. So I had been in LA with Toshi. We performed at UCLA in Royce Hall for 1800 people. And I came back to New York to this flurry of concerned calls, asking me if I had food, asking me if I had water, asking me, asking me, and my not understanding of or fully grasping what the problem was. And then I got on a plane a couple days later and I arrived in New York on Friday, March 13th. Mm. And no one would meet me anywhere. And then maybe a week after that, the pastor of the church across the street from where I live was dead. And two weeks after that, one of the ministers at the mosque next to the church was dead. Mm. An elderly neighbor in my building a month after that was dead. And then I just, I locked down. Yeah. It's interesting because I was in LA at the same time you were. I was on tour and flew back that Friday as well. And then got home and my mom is like losing it. You know, my mom, who's 75 years old, she's like, look, I'm not going to beat this thing if I get it. So, right, like very having these very real conversations like, listen, I don't know what you're doing, but if you're not paying attention, you need to kind of park it. Because if you come over here to help me do something, 
I can't risk you infecting me. And then it got very real. Um, and then I locked down. It's so strange, all of it. And it's also been really wild as an artist to try to make stuff, um, which I know we don't really have to, I guess. But for me, this is the only, this is where I put my stuff. And it became hard to put my stuff where I always put my stuff. Because? I'm still trying to figure that out. I'm realizing that part of my process when it comes to making things and even exercising all of the stuff is like the human element has to be there as well. Even though most of my work is a solitary thing, um, at least on its surface, I realized that without the bumping up against human beings and the humanness of those human beings, um, it's a part of the distillation process when it comes to making things. And so being locked down for this long and not having humans around me has made it difficult for me to tap into my creative imagination. I just want to thank you for saying that because it's it's one of those things that gets hard to explain to people after a while. In part, I think, because we're used to operating on such a base level so that if you have a place to live and you have food to eat and you have shelter and you have clothes, then that is the the genesis of your staircase to gratitude. Hmm. And when do those things become given and rights of all people so that we can actually aspire to some other higher <laughs> or, God forbid, lofty notions of what it means to be okay? Yeah. And I definitely am in mourning. It depends on who I'm speaking with, whether or not I share that, because mm -hmm. there are people who just need for you to be fine. Like my mom sure. cannot bear to hear that I'm not okay. She just can't. Right. My mom just turned 93 a couple weeks wow. ago. I've been talking with her. She's not going to have the vaccine. And her, her thing is that when the Lord is ready to take her, he's going to take her. And that's it. And what can you say to that? Nothing. Nothing. I say, okay, mom. Yeah. You know, do you think about who will be when this, if this is over? Mm -hmm. I'm just interested to see how we've changed. I mean, I, th I mean, I lived in New York, as you know, for so long. And I, I think about my life in New York often. I don't live there anymore, but I, I often think about my time there and how grateful I am to have had that time and the relationships that I've built and the experiences I've had and the person that that city helped to make me. And yet I wonder if I will ever not fear it now. Hmm. The idea of coming through that tunnel. And it makes me sad that I'm afraid, you know, and I'm hoping that I can just work through it and that, you know, a year from now, this will all be something that we talk about and reminisce about, but I don't know. I, I don't know. Like, I hate to have dumped this on you. So I want to stop you right now. I don't feel dumped on. What I feel and continue to feel is how important it is when we can, when we have the luxury of words, <laughs> to find them and to share them with with folks who are also in search of words. Yeah. And when I was thinking about this season, 
I feel such a level of chaos inside that I couldn't possibly see the value of continuing to talk. And then I'll just be in my life and I'll get a message. And someone has just listened to an episode of Helga with whomever. And they can't believe how in this time that those words and those conversations still have so much meaning for them and they say thank you. So then who am I to say no? Who am I to not show up? Yeah. I try not to take my myself too seriously, but I do try to take whatever reason I may be here um, seriously in that I try to give whatever little bit I have to give um, selflessly in hopes that whatever void it seems to be sort of cast into, um, that it that it knocks up against who and what it needs to knock up against. And I got to be good. I, I got to be okay with with just, just sort of putting those things out there and, and hoping for that because I got to justify, at least try to justify why, why I'm here. I'm here to justify that. I'll never understand it because there is no rhyme or reason. Recently, somebody was talking about talent and they said it's, it's the only thing that's sort of given out blindly, right? It's like it's just kind of sprinkled out. <laughs> like, like there is no, it's like it's just kind of sprinkled out. You know, oh, it was Fran Leibowitz. Uh, 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 Fran Leibowitz said this. She's like, oh, it, it, there, it's like it's just like pixie dust that's just tossed up in the air and somebody gets some on them and somebody doesn't. And if you get a little on you, you know, don't take it for granted. It could save somebody's life. Um, or at least help somebody feel less alone, which in turn could save someone's life. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing to think about. And I don't see it as a burden, right? What what an honor to be able to uh, say something, mm-hmm. make something. I mean, geez, what an honor, you know? And it doesn't negate the fact that we are where we are in this moment emotionally, that we are wounded and hurting and grieving at the same time. That's for sure. I mean, it's, it's sort of a miraculous thing to think about all the things the body can hold, right? All the things that the mind can hold, the psyche and spirit can hold. I mean, there's another brother that I love named Eugene Yelchin. Uh, Eugene Yelchin is a, uh, a Russian American who is these days most known as an illustrator, but he he was also the man who who made the Coca-Cola Bears back in, in, in the early 90s. And uh, he grew up in the Russian ballet. Both of his parents were a part of the Russian ballet, and so he grew up in the wing as a child. And he told me, you know, what's interesting about growing up in the ballet, especially the Russian ballet, is when you sit in the wing, you can look out into the audience and you can see the amazement on the faces of the crowd, the joy the utter enamorment, the overwhelm that's rushing over the crowd while watching such beauty and such grace on the stage. But on the wing, you can also see the blood. Um, You're close enough to see these dancers who are smiling and moving as human manifestations of cursive. And you can't see it from the audience. Mm -hmm. But when you're close enough, you can see the toes breaking. And that's what it's like oftentimes. It's like, I am in pain and, and. simultaneously um, 
birthing something. This pain is a different pain, but I wonder, is there ever a moment where those two things aren't symbiotic? My, my father died in December. and Wait a minute. Just wait one second. He was, he was dying for a long time. It's quite a transformative loss. It was also tremendously beautiful for me. Our experience in the, in the transition of our father was painful and lots of other things. And I would be disingenuous and reductive to limit that experience to one of merely just pain. It was phenomenal. Death is a phenomenon in many ways. Unfortunately, most of us, um, because the loss is so heavy and so and so magnanimous that it's hard to see the other elements to it. But I, but I have to be honest and say that for us in that moment, there was a lot of really just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful things taking place. The painful part was couldn't hug him. Right. I toward the end, he was like, listen, man, like bring it in. You know, it's like I ain't, I ain't going to make it. So, <laughs> like, you can't. But he was and he was that aware that he he oh, was leaving. He was lucid until two days before death. So he was lucid the whole time. And I hung out with him. We laughed. We joked. His last words to me was a joke about his own death, which is very much so my father. Right. Nothing was serious. Nothing. Like he, he believed life was far too serious to be taken seriously. And so even as he was fading out, he his last words to me were, I said, Pop, I love you. I'm going to, you get some rest. And he bust out laughing and said, I'm going to get a whole lot of rest real soon. And we, and my older, <laughs> my older brother and I got in the car, looked at each other and bust out laughing and said, that was perfect. And, and he never spoke again. You know, I have a buddy who's a, uh, a dear friend of mine who is um, a doctor and a staunch, a very sort of uh, regimented Buddhist. And one time he was telling me this interesting thing where he was saying, you know, Jason, the, the beauty of the body and the beauty of the mind and the beauty of the spirit um, is that all of it is working to protect you, right? And so he said that when we think about pain, specifically emotional pain as it pertains to loss, right? Like a heartbreak. He said the, the brain processes this in like 17 seconds. And then the brain is done, right? The chemicals <laughs> that make you feel that way move through in about 17 seconds. But memory that we cling to of what was once normal is what causes the suffering. But the body has processed it out, trying to save your life. And uh, what a phenomenal thing to think about, yeah. you know? <laughs> well, I also think all of this takes a kind of spaciousness that I don't always have access to. The letting go, allowing the brain to do its thing, and then the eye not getting involved <laughs> with hanging on to anything. Are there things that you, practices that you have that you do every day that every person could do? I think so. I mean, okay, here's what, here's my new thing I'm adding into my 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 practice. Sleep. Mm. I haven't been sleeping in like a decade. Oh. 15 years. I got to New York when I was 20 and 
everyone around me told me that if you're going to make it, you got to like, you know, sleep when you're dead. You got to grind it out. It's an all night thing. This is a city that doesn't sleep. If you sleep and they working, they going, they're going to get what you want to get. And all this other nonsense that isn't actually true, right? And then you get to New York and all of us live boring lives like everywhere else in the world. I just, <laughs> I don't even leave the five blocks I live on. It's like, I, it's like this weird thing that people had this assumption that everybody in New York is just running and running and running. And it's like, people be chilling. Like, I ain't, <laughs> <laughs> but but I but I did sort of grind it, and and I mean I really sort of did that to the point that it just became a part of. I don't know, like I was good with four hours. I thought I was good with four hours, right? And then it became I just can't get comfortable in bed. I cannot wind down. I, my body's uncomfortable in the bed. I've tried all the different mattresses. I've tried all the different pillows. I've taken the melatonin. I've done the lavender. I've, and it's like, you know, and so I've, I've decided to dedicate the rest of this year to um, developing healthier sleep habits. That's my new thing. Now, when I wake up in the morning, first thing I've been doing now is I, I light a candle for my father, which is unbelievably comforting. And that's something that um, I'll probably be doing for the rest of my life. Uh, and when it's my mom's time, there'll be a second one there. So there's that. And then I do the New York Times crossword puzzle every day. Uh, I do get the paper. I get the physical tactile paper delivered to my house every day, um, which is terrible for the environment, but is necessary for me. I, we're, we're already not touching enough. Right, like I need to to touch the things, and so I, I do my crossword puzzle Monday and Tuesday. Amazing. Wednesday it starts getting a little shaky. By Thursday and Friday, I'm really just going through the motions. I've been, I've been doing this for years, and you would think I would have gotten better at the Thursday and Friday ones, but turns out it ain't there yet. So I'm I'm, I'm working, <laughs> um, and I do that. I have my coffee because that's a part of the ritual for me. You know, there's something about uh, making something. Yeah. I also have a really intense skincare regimen that I do every single morning. At this point, it has less to do with with my vanity and more to do with habit. Uh, and so after the paper, um, that's when I usually sit down at the computer. Uh, and, and and this is when like it gets it gets it depends on the day because I have a, a wonderful person who manages my life and like that's when I'm checking in with her. And sometimes it's like, look, I need you to <laughs> answer these 100 emails or some days it's like, look, I've carved out time for you to have time to yourself to do what you want. Now, if if it's one of those days where it's like there's not much, we're not going to do much of this sort of rigmarole, the 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 red tape of of being a quote-unquote professional, then then I, I I do my work. I do my writing. Now I'm gonna do my writing anyway. Either way, some way I'm gonna I'm gonna work it in. I always day. write about f- every day. Something every day. on the page. I put in a couple of hours. Okay. Every single day, pen and pad, um, writing my stories, writing my thoughts, even sometimes just journaling. But usually I'm working on some kind of creative project, um, and just word by word, just kind of working it out. And that brings me the most joy. I love this work. It's not always easy and it's not always fun, but it is always a joy to do uh, for me. I feel so grateful to 
be an artist. And uh, it is religious for me. And I pray at that altar every day. And then after that, I go see my mom if she needs to check on her, make sure she's good. Or I'll, you know, walk around the block. And sometimes I lay on the couch and watch a movie, you know, or read a book. Or, you know, I try to create time in my life for leisure as well. I think it's it's okay for us to take a break. So that's another thing on <laughs> and that so that's list another thing. of things. Yeah. And then I cook. I'll be in there sprinkling microgreens on the top of it. And like, I mean, I'm doing it's it's a whole thing for me. Because because again, I like to make things. Mm-hmm. So you can make everything. That's that's an interesting thing that we can make everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can make everything. And every night I look at it, I marvel at this thing I've made. And sometimes it tastes delicious and sometimes I've I've oversalted, you know, and it's like, okay, I'm gonna try again the next week. Mm-hmm. And on Sunday, I just you know wake up and have a bottle of champagne. You get one, you get one spin. Yeah. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, if this hall could talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Jason, I want to ask you about words, because there's some research that shows that one of the biggest indicators of poverty in children is not just related to race or zip code, but it's about the number of words a child knows and that a child's ability to name their surroundings, to name the things around mm-hmm. them, is the thing that, that can save them from many other things that may be against them. Talk a little bit about your developing your relationship with words. Oh, man. Words. I, for me, it, it was all about my mother. We always talk about how she never spoke to me, and it's funny because we laugh about it now. She was like, "We never, we never did baby talk. She never did the the goo goo gaga, look at my sweet little baby. She never did any of that. She always sort of just spoke to me and talked with me and to me regularly, as if I weren't an infant, <laughs> um, but as if I were a human." And so because of this, she always tells the story about how I was talking before I was walking, which is a very rare thing, like talking, talking. She always still teases me because she would say, we would be having full conversations, but I wouldn't go to the bathroom in the toilet. And so for her, she's like, we're having a conversation. So you understand what I'm telling you, right? (laughs) You're comprehending. And so I can't figure out why you won't just tell me when you got to go to the bathroom. It's like, cause I didn't feel like it. Like I, <laughs> and so it's always been a thing in my life. You know, my family members, whenever we have a, a, a any kind of family dinner, all of my family members talk about how they would sit me at the head of the table as a, as a one-year-old and everyone would just ask me questions and, and we would go back and forth and engage sort of volleying language back and forth. And so like, that's where it begins. And then as I got older, it sort of, exacerbated through music. Oh. 
everything changed when I started to put two and two together and realize that the songs I was singing are words, hmm. right? It's, a, it's, a, it's not just sound, that these sounds are coded into individual words. My father, who, as I told you before, was a huge prankster, he was sort of the caregiver. Um, my mom was a, she was sort of a hardworking, scrappy, you know, I got to get out here and make it happen, you know? And so my father was the one who got us up in the morning. He made us breakfast, got us dressed, took us to school. And because of that, he was the one who would play all the music in the car on the way. And my dad was like a rock and roll kind of guy, tattoos. And, and you know, he was like very different for the early 1980s wow. for a black man. Yeah. I mean, covered in tattoos and gold chains and like uh, tight pants and motorcycles and Corvettes and, and guitars and like, I grew up with it. They were very, very different kind of, my parents were just very different. And so he would play this music. You remember the song, My Sharona? Mm-hmm. And, and he would tell me that they were saying My Scrotum. <laughs> Uh, because he, because he, because he knew, right? This is how he was because, because he knew that I would repeat it because he knew I loved to like sing the words. I didn't know what it meant. And so he would do that so that I would get in trouble at school or whatever. And he thought it was funny, but he also would play ad nauseum in 1988, Tracy Chapman. And I remember being so fascinated by Fast Car mm -hmm. and specifically when she says, my old man's got a problem. Um, he lives by the bottle. That's the way it is. Mm -hmm. Says his body's too old for working, but his body's too young to look like his. And I remember the, the moment of being like, I, I know what that means. Mm -hmm. I'm like six, right? But there is pattern here and there's meaning here. And I don't know if it's because there was less instrumentation. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is like a conversation. And then after that, of course, comes Queen Latifah. Right, comes hip hop. And my older brother was of that age where it's like, this is the greatest art form to ever exist. And this is all I want to listen to. And my, my mom is banging on the door. It's the whole thing, right? And I've got my ear to the wall. And I'm like, this is magic. Hmm. And, uh, and after that, it was over for me. Was that ever a possibility for you to, to go into hip hop? No. And I think this is where it sort of connects back to my mother talking to me as a, as a baby and like those earlier years, because I never wanted to be a rapper. I just wanted to do the word thing. I was the kid who read the liner notes. I wanted to see the lyrics on the page even more than I wanted to hear it. I remember they, they had an old technique turntable and, 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 and it never worked because my parents used to have parties. And when they split, the party stopped, the turntable sort of went you know to shambles. But my mother said that I could have the turntable, even though it didn't work. And I remember putting Bob Marley's Kaya record on. And the first song on that album is, Is This Love? And I remember spinning it with my finger uh -huh. and listening to the, and because it's going so slowly, I could hear the word, like it's just clear, just, just the words, right? It's almost as if it were acapella because it's so slow, right? I did the same thing for Nina Simone's four women mm. on record, right? And I'm spinning it and I'm like, wait, these are characters. Of course, we know that she's talking about archetypes, but when you're my age, you know, Aunt Sarah and Peaches, these are characters and she's telling their stories. And I'm like, oh, this is, a, this is an interesting way to make a song. And then my mother was big on like soul music. You were listening to Stax or Motown only, 
right? And me being a little kid in the car, just going for it. And after that, I just started writing poetry, right? Because I think that I recognize that these songs, they chemically changed me because I memorized them. And when you memorize language, that language lives in your body. That's that's where it began. So it was like, all right, first comes my mother respecting me as a human being. Secondly, my family speaking to me as a member of the family and not like a baby. And then came, you know, the music. And my mother had Nikki Giovanni and Langston Hughes books that we never read, but just living in the house, right? And you, and eventually you start to pick around and see that this is the same thing as the rappers are doing, right? I'm reading, you know, Cotton Candy on a Rainy Day. I'm reading Great Packs Whitey. I'm reading, you know, Ego Tripping. And I'm like, oh, this is, you know, and then you start catching references, right? So I'm listening to the Fugees. And Lauren Hill says, you know, I'll be Nina Simone and defecating on your microphone. And then you realize, wait a minute, I know who that is. I've heard this name before. Right. And I don't know if I could be a word person without recognizing that I exist on a continuum. And I think all of those things just make it feel like some weird magical thing that I that I cleave to. To that point, I think it's why I'm so worried about what I hear a lot of young people, and particularly a lot of young people of color, listening to. Now, I'm worried about the language that they take into their bodies and that they process. And I wonder if you would say something about that. Yeah. This is something that I battle with because I don't want to admit that it's true. Um, I struggle with it because I want them to have theirs. And I also want them to know the power that language actually has. Um, It is the cornerstone of culture and the cornerstone of existence itself. If the language of a particular part of our culture is destructive, then it is really difficult for particular portions of our culture to not be poisoned. My biggest fear is that it's not enough of a balance I think um, when I think about my generation, when I was coming up, you know, there was the Queen Latifahs, thankfully. But, you know, I also grew up with Snoop. And, you know, this was that was gang music. It was pimp music. I grew up with N.W.A. You know, we'd speak about N.W.A. as like these revolutionaries. And they, they were in certain ways. But like, we, we, it's a bit revisionist. Just a bit. It's like, go listen to the rest of, of the catalog. I mean, like, y'all, y'all, we listen to F the Police and we're like, exactly. And it's like, eh, there are other songs that would um, push back against that idea. And so we had all of that. But I'm, I'd be lying and disingenuous if I said that some of that music wasn't extraordinarily violent and misogynistic and homophobic. And that's the reality. And so I'm trying to figure out where the nuance is, I guess between making art and sowing sadness into the lives of of our kids. My fear is that what happens is we dismiss and negate the music that is not like that, that is doing the work. I don't know. And I'm also trying to give them a little bit of, just a little bit of rope just because I don't want to um, chastise teenagers for being teenagers. You know what's interesting? I remember when we were younger and... When I was coming up, you didn't call a woman a B-word, right? You just didn't say it. And then I remember the music changing and becoming popular and listening to the music and loving it. And then how over the course of a year or two, 
just got easier to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, before that, it felt strange in the mouth. It felt like vinegar, right? And then suddenly, uh, over time, it just got easier and easier and easier to say, right? So I know for a fact that it has an effect. I remember it having an effect on us. I remember it sort of changing the way that we saw our women friends, our homegirls. It changed the way that we treated them, the way that we spoke to them. It, it shifted things in us chemically. We don't talk about it often enough. Something happened. Something was happening to us, right? And we were fortunate in certain ways, but not all of us grew out of it or bounced back or, you know, not everybody, you know what I mean, worked through those things. But I'd be lying if I said that there wasn't some sort of shifting happening. <laughs> Jason, last year... I was down in the West Village, a couple of little kids who were messing with a grocer. And I don't know if they were trying to steal. I don't know what they were trying to do. And then they ran out in the street and they were throwing something at each other and whatever they were throwing hit me. And so I turned to look at them and the littlest one just looked up at me and said, yeah, what you going to do? What you going to do? You ain't going to do nothing. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? Go read a book. And I felt ashamed that I had said that to him because I, I understood all the other things I wasn't saying. And really, at another time, in another generation, if I had been that kid and I had been myself, I would have just snatched him up and asked him what he thought he was doing <laughs> and where his parents were. And I better not ever see, like there was a whole system in place to correct and to help navigate that thing. And there, yeah. there isn't that so much now. But also you write so beautifully for young people and you, I feel like you're in that dialogue with them. I'm trying to be. <laughs> and that there's a thing you understand. And I just... I would love to know or have more tools to help. It's so difficult. You know, I, I think about, you know, like that young man is not so tough without his friends. And I know that because I was that, I was that young man. I was like the sweetest kid though. But if my friends were around, I felt bigger. Mm -hmm. I felt emboldened. I felt tougher. We would get on a train in DC and we would cuss as loud as possible because we thought that that's what it meant to be an adult, mm -hmm. to be mature, was to use adult language. And you ain't saying nothing. <laughs> just, just, just yelling out curse words. And usually, usually <laughs> these kids, from what I find, being in the juvenile detention systems and, and writing these books and being in the schools, and a lot of these youngins are waiting for someone to snatch them up. Yeah. It is a strange feeling to feel like no one cares what you do. I remember being in Brooklyn, little boy is walking down the street. He walks past a trash can and throws his bottle on the sidewalk. And I had to get him. Hey, you live around here. Pick that up. For what, man? Look at it. It's a trash can two steps behind you. Right? And we had a whole conversation. And he picked it up and he pouted. And he said whatever he needed to say under his breath. I don't care. If I let your mumblings break me down, right, that's my fault. Mm -hmm. Put it in the trash. And now, next time you on this block, you're going to know better because you're going to be scared that I might be outside. But I'll tell you what, Helga, guess what, though? There was an older man, an OG in the neighborhood who got me at 
26 years old. I was walking down the street, had my head down because I have terrible posture. And he bumped into me intentionally. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, man. Excuse me. And he said, what's wrong with you? And I said, nothing's wrong. I'm all right. He said, why you, Why you, Why is your head hanging down? Mm. I said, I'm fine, man. And you know, in New York, we, we, we do this thing where we just kind of keep walking. You, you, you speak while you're moving away from a person, right? So I'm throwing this over my shoulder, even though I should have stopped because he's an elder. I should have given him the benefit of the doubt, but I didn't. And he said, stop walking while I'm talking to you. And he said, let me, uh, let me show you something. And then he sprinted down the block, sprinted back. And he said, I'm 90 years old. And he said, you know why I can still do that? He said, because my posture. And then he said, and then he leaned in closer and picked my head up. And he said, also, there's enough people out here who are begging to see you with your head down. The least you could do is make it hard. He doesn't know me. He's a stranger, but he's not. And so I think what we're missing right now sometimes is, is we're looking at these kids like they're strangers. We're looking at them like we, we've decided who they are simply because of their behavior. When the truth of the matter is we should never see a child as anything more than a child. Children ain't gangsters. They ain't monsters. They're not <laughs> criminals. They're, they're, they're children. And, um, and they're waiting for one of us to acknowledge that. For one of us to just say like, hey, man, y'all chill out. Like, yo, cool it. Like, relax. Mm. what's going on with you? Like, just chill out. But you're going to know I'm not afraid of you. I can't be scared of what I love. Mm. You don't scare me. I'm supposed to be the adult. I'm supposed to know better. And what I know better is you're not angry with me, right? But you are angry at what I represent. Adults have failed you. And you know that already. And you can feel the disrespect. And so your response, because you don't necessarily have the lexicon to express your true feelings, anger is the only, is the easiest one to access, right? Imagine if you had a vocabulary. Imagine. Imagine to be able to say, this is how I'm feeling. It's important that we don't give up on each other. These babies are a lot because they've seen a lot and they've been through a lot and they hurt a lot. And, and we, we have to have an unending well of grace. It is necessary for the most human amongst us who are the children, right? The, the children are the most human amongst the humans because they just got here, right? It's their first time doing this human thing. I feel the same way, though, about our elders. It pains me that over time we have stopped intergenerational congregation. It is important to be around the, the, the OGs as much as it is for the OGs to be around these babies. And I think that the intergenerational mingling is very important so that we, we maintain a certain level of respect and reverence for the elders. And there are certain things these babies know that only they can tell us. Everything I know about gender politics as the, or gender identity as it's changed and continues to change and shift and be named um, in all these glorious and in intricate ways have come from 16-year-olds. Thank God for them. Mm -hmm. And when I pushed back in a moment of, of, of ignorance, when I pushed back and said, but, but I don't understand, the young woman said, what is there to understand? I am asking you to refer to me as this. Why is this a, a debate? Mm -hmm. I needed that person. 
right? And so I just, let's not give up on each other, no matter how difficult it, it gets, including ourselves. Um, and let's try to figure out how to drum up as much grace as possible during this time and beyond. It's so great to be here with you. Same. I'm glad we got to do this finally. Finally. <laughs> And that was my conversation with author Jason Reynolds. I'm Helga Davis. If you want more of these conversations, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts, give us a rating, and share with a friend. And don't forget to follow me at hel.gadavis on Instagram. Helga, The Armory Conversations is a co-production of WNYC Studios and Park Avenue Armory. The show is produced by Crystal Hawes-Dressler with help from Darian Suggs and myself. Our technical producer is Sapir Rosenblatt. Original music by Michelle Endege Ocello and Jason Moran. Special thanks to Alex Ambrose. Avery Willis-Hoffman is our executive producer. City and Bloomberg Philanthropies are the Armory's 2021 season sponsors. And now, the coda. The first thing I notice is that his mother is nowhere to be found. This is my first clue that something is very, very wrong. If someone, as a joke, has told the boy to go outside and play in traffic, he is understood and has found himself in the middle of the street, banging on the hood of a car whose driver doesn't know about his missing mother, his autism, nor that he cannot speak, and begins blowing his horn impatiently. I see another neighbor and ask him, where's his mother? He turns to look as I head toward the boy. The boy sees me move toward him and begins to run run toward the intersection where traffic is sure to be less forgiving than the one car he encountered. But the streets still work, are still holding together. And when my neighbor yells, grab him, two strong black hands reach out for the boy in mid-flight, ending his adventure. As I approach, another man begins to reprimand the boy as the man holding him wants to shake some sense into him. He doesn't understand, I offer, in a much more calm tone than I feel. You're scaring him. They give me the we're just trying to help look, and I thank them. These are babies, Jason Reynolds said in that voice, that writer's voice, that black man in America voice, that voice that has claimed page after page all young voices as his own voice. I ease my hand into the boy's hand and hold it firmly. If he can squeeze back, I know that I can get him across the street safely and begin looking for his mother. He looks off into the distance and begins to pull away. I can't believe how strong he is. I insist and hold him a little tighter until he allows me to move him across the street toward home. My neighbor rings the bell of the apartment where the boy lives and yells into the intercom, come get your son. 
hate him for this. I open the door and begin walking the boy up the stairs. I hear a door slam all the way from the top floor and the terror in the footsteps that cannot run fast enough down the stairs. When she sees her son is safe, she throws herself to the ground, writhing in a mother's pain, not quite screaming, not quite crying, everything trapped deep in her throat and body. Her head, arms, and legs all search the stairwell floor until finally she asks, Why me, Lord? Why me? Another neighbor had already joined her. We stand and witness silently until the first spasms of the question pass through her. Look, I say, he's safe. Come, look, he's safe. I open my free arm, folding her into me, into her son. The neighbor who had accompanied her down the stairs joins the circle and folds us into her. The neighbor who yelled to come get her son stands on the staircase watching. I look up as he points, letting me know that this is not his part, and he heads up the stairs. Whatever else is happening in the world, we know the impact of language, the effect of words on our actions, our very chemistry. The impact of our language in every moment, like this one, has the potential to change the path of each person we encounter and affect our own. And on this day, another one of our babies is home, safe.